Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. morning. Chris and Amy, if you can come on up wherever you guys are at with your family. We uh, have, have been on a nine-month search for our first full-time children's pastor. And allow me to introduce Chris and Amy Watson. Chris is going to be coming on the end of this month and their lovely, lovely family. This is so exciting. See, first service, I was hospi- hospitable enough to get him the mic. Now I just, he, he's, he's an old-timer. He's got to get his own mic. But. Second service, yeah, I got to get it. Um, so we're excited to join Quest and um, just be able to partner with you guys and your families to be able to share the love of Christ with your kids. And um, so it's really, uh, we're looking forward to getting to know you all and uh, just being able to serve the kids. Awesome. Would you give a big warm welcome to them? Chris... Chris has been uh, uh, a, a bivocational volunteer in leading children's ministry in a much larger church for 10 years, uh, leading both small group and large group uh, teaching there. He's also started from the ground up. He and his wife started from the ground up a children's ministry at a church plant that had like 100 and some odd people and 65 kids. It was just a tremendous opportunity and, and just built it from the ground up. And we're really excited to have them. So uh, they'll be starting officially on the 26th of this month. He's got to finish up his other job and then he's going to take a little bit of vacation. And then so you will see him here officially in that role starting the 26th of the month. And we're really, really excited about what God's doing there. Thank you to all of you who have uh, made commitments and all of you who give in general to Quest uh, through the Forward campaign or just in your normal giving. You've made this possible. This is the first big step in our Forward initiatives. And I want to thank you. I know some of you uh, keep telling me you're still praying about forward. And some of you talk to me about the fact that it's really hard for you to think about a long-term commitment. Well, then let me suggest if long-term commitment is, is not something you feel like you can do, would you consider just for two or three months giving whatever extra you can beyond what you normally give? Our expenses will be a little bit higher the next couple months with some of the transition stuff going on. And, uh, and also, we need to build up some cash reserves so we can get to the point of taking step two, which is to begin the the work on updating this auditorium so we can start doing more digital ministry, both of our services, but also doing other things digitally in ministry as well. So that's kind of our next step, and you can help with that. I'd appreciate anything you do. Thank you for your generosity in that. I'm excited to start a new series today, uh, and let me start by asking you a question. What do you like in life? Here are some of the things I like, because there's a lot of things to like. I like my family very much. They're all a lot of fun to hang with. And that, that's actually a great picture by Katie James. She took pictures of our family. And so good photographer. And we really, we really, I, I love hanging out with my family. There's other things I like too in life. I love March Madness basketball. Anybody else like that? Within that, it's a go ducks time of year. And my other favorite team, actually, because Bill Self used to be the, was the best coach ever at my alma mater before he left and went a couple places and eventually ended up at Kansas. I like him so much, I root for whatever team he coaches. So I'm pretty, I've got a pretty good chance of making Final Four 
and a championship this year. I'm doing pretty good on that. I also love doing brackets. So uh, if you would love to join me, you can go on Quest and uh, do a go to Quest bracket, and we'll just have bragging rights of whoever here does the best throughout March Madness. We'll just have some fun with that. But there's a link on Facebook for that, or if you're not on Facebook and you'd like me to send you a link, email me. I'd be happy to send you a link, and you can join our go to Quest group of brackets on that. There's a lot more to like in life. I like pickled herring. Anybody else? I only had one person in the first service, and now I've got two. This is awesome. This is really getting good. We can share something together. There's a bond going on. I love hiking in the mountains. I like hiking in the mountains. And I like ketchup on my grilled meat and cheese sandwiches. Anybody else? No? No? Yeah, yeah. I like these kinds of pictures, too, that my dad sends me. And that one. And that one. I don't know. I just get a chuckle out of stuff like that. So I don't know what it is, what it is. But uh, what do you like in life? We're in a series called Like Jesus. And there's so much to like about Jesus. So many of the most powerful stories in all of human history, the stories that inspire us, the stories that still today provide a moral compass for us, and the stories that drive our compassion for those in need became widespread in Jesus. Whether it's the prodigal son story or the golden rule, or the idea that greater love has no one than to lay down their life for a friend, and so many other things that Jesus said and made big that we still talk about today. One of my favorite interactions of Jesus is is recorded in the Gospels, and it's where the religious leaders bring this woman caught in adultery before Jesus in John 8. If you've ever been betrayed by someone you loved who committed adultery, whether it was a spouse or a parent or a leader you respected, you may know what it's like in some moments to have such hurt and such anger that you wish that person were dead. But in Jesus' day, the Old Testament law made it very clear that one caught in adultery was deserving of being sentenced to death. So the religious leaders set up Jesus, asking him the question, what should we do with this woman that we've brought before you? So just try to imagine that setting with me for a minute. Imagine this woman having been dragged through the streets, probably skinned up feet from the sandals dragging, her feet dragging behind, trembling and crying and having been forcefully dragged before Jesus. Imagine the crowd of angry men and women all picking up stones, preparing to stone her. Uh, Think and see in your mind the faces of the religious leaders, hoping hoping that Jesus would pass judgment on her so that the masses following him would no longer see him as a friend of sinners or hoping that Jesus would say they shouldn't kill her and thereby publicly disagree with a clear statement in Scripture. Either way, they had Jesus in a no-win situation. So imagine this. As the leaders come and they finish that sentence, Jesus, what should we do? And a sudden hush comes over the crowd. This loud, raucous crowd just goes deathly silence, waiting for Jesus to answer. What do we see Jesus do? If you've read that story, in the midst of all the looks and the angst of the angry mob, Jesus pauses and he kneels down on the ground and he just starts to write with his finger in the dirt. Jesus does this long enough that several people break the hushed silence of the crowd and repeat to Jesus the question, What say you, Jesus? 
What should we do? Thinking he didn't hear the question the first time or pressing him for an answer. And Jesus just continues. After a few moments, he stands up and he says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And he kneels down again. He just starts starting in the dirt. And the text says, the eyewitness account says that beginning with the oldest and the wisest in the crowd, one by one, the entire crowd drops their stone and walks away, heads down, quietly slipping away, leaving Jesus and his disciples alone with the woman. And Jesus looks up at the woman and says this in John 8, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. If you allow yourself to enter that scene, be there in that moment with Jesus, especially if you allow yourself to enter the scene as you being that woman caught in adultery, you standing before Jesus with all of your sin on display for him and the whole crowd around you. And you allow yourself to experience Jesus responding to you in that way. It will flood you with emotion, with inspiration. In fact, if you saw that story posted on Facebook today, I guarantee it would go viral in a heartbeat. Everyone would be liking, loving, and sharing that story. There is so much to like about Jesus. And typically, we're really inspired by someone. And when we're, when we're really inspired by someone, we really like them. There's something about them that we want to not just like, but something that we want to be like. You see, it's, it's good to like. It's better to be like those good things we like in another person. And honestly, most of the people I know in life like Jesus. Christians like Jesus. Muslims like Jesus. Most Hindus like Jesus. Most Americans like Jesus. Even many, many of the self-proclaimed agnostics and atheists I know like Jesus. So wherever you are in your belief about who Jesus is, whether you are unsure of Jesus' claims to be God and therefore you're not a follower of him in that way yet, or whether you are sure of who Jesus is and you're a follower, but you still don't know exactly what it means to really be like him, to be a disciple of Jesus, or, or whether you're a person who would describe yourself as, I'm completely sold out and I desperately want to be like Jesus. I want to invite you on a journey these next few weeks as we lead up to Easter in this series. A journey of going beyond just liking Jesus, which is good to understanding so much more about what it means to be like Jesus. You see, at the very least through this series, you're going to be inspired. At the very most through this series, you're going to discover a relationship that is so much more deep and beautiful with the God who loves you in a way that it continues to reorient your life and, and your life is going to take on even more meaning and richness throughout this time.
And we're going to do that through this series by looking at Jesus' own words and Jesus' actions as he begins to define for his followers back then and for us now what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be like him. And one of the most frequent questions I get asked by people who are faithful followers of Jesus and by people who are still searching out this whole Jesus and church thing has been, what does it mean to be a disciple? How do I become a disciple of Jesus? So today, let's begin exploring this by looking at first what being a disciple meant in Jesus' day, because Jesus entered a world where the idea of discipleship was really prevalent. And we need to understand the world in which he was living and talking to around this idea. And then second, we're going to look at today and begin to look at some ways that Jesus flips on its head the idea of what disciple meant in that day and profoundly changed some things. In a sense, back in Jesus' day, disciples in Jesus' day were the rising leadership stars of their culture. So we'll start there. If you think about that, where do we go for our rising stars in leadership today? We typically go where? We go to the universities, right? And not just any university. We go to the, we go to the Harvards and Oxfords of the world. In the, in the Christian world, we go to the Ashlands, the Asburys, the Fullers, the ORUs, the Wheatons of the world. And, and Jesus could have done that. In fact, just a mere 30 miles away from where Jesus was, an area he walked through regularly during his ministry was this town called Scythopolis. It's this amazing city with stadiums to seat thousands and theaters and running water and and a big university that it had. It's really an amazing place for the first century of of Christianity and, and that time period. But Jesus didn't go there to pick any of his disciples. He went to a, instead to a place in a rural area that's often called the Galilean Triangle. It's Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum area, known for just down-to-earth, hard-working people who were generally very devout in their faith as Jews. Bethsaida and Capernaum, just to give you an idea, were really just small fishing villages, maybe up to about 600 people. So if you think of the size of Alexandria just out here out of town on 161, it's about that size. Eight to ten family clans living there. Each family clan had kind of this housing complex where they'd each have their housing area, but then they'd have common areas and and a common courtyard that they all shared as an extended family clan. So imagine for a moment five little boys uh, growing up together in Capernaum, running from one's family's friend's courtyard to another, playing, doing shenanigans, working together, learning the fishing trade together. And one day these five boys become Jesus' inner core of 12 disciples. And they go on to change the world as we know it in their lifetime. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew were all from Capernaum. They grew up together. Three of the innermost of his innermost disciples, Peter, James, and John, were from this area. And as the archaeological digs will show of the Capernaum area, the, the, a very important building block of being a disciple in their in their day was the synagogue, which was just a couple hundred feet away from their homes. They all surrounded the synagogue with their homes. And at the center of the synagogue experience was this high respect for God's word, the Bible. They would come to worship, and the high point of that worship service was when the scroll of Scripture would be brought out, and everybody would begin to sing praise, and people would go up and they'd kiss the scroll to express their devotion to God's Word. 
And then they would open the scroll and they would read the Bible aloud and the local rabbi would teach what it meant and visiting rabbis would come and discuss and debate the meaning of how to live in accordance with God's word. And attached to the synagogue was a school which was really revolutionary in that day for this, for even, even in that day, but, it, but it, it, was, it, was, it was an elementary school, essentially, that educated both boys and girls, both. They would go there, they would learn to read and write, and they would learn significant, they would do that by studying God's Word, and, and they would memorize significant portions of the Bible. But see, attending synagogue, even attending that school and graduating, did not make you a disciple in the Jewish world of Jesus' day. At the end of their version of elementary school, all the girls were getting close to marrying age because they married really young, and, and so that most of them left. In fact, basically all of them left the educational system. They went back home, and they learned the household management and some of the household uh, family trade that they were doing, and all the boys, most of the boys would go back and do the same thing, learn the family trade. The few boys that actually did continue into what was their version of the secondary school were the best and the brightest. And it was very, very competitive to be a part of this process. And they would continue. And by the time they got done, they would have memorized the majority, if not all, of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And if you've read Numbers, that's hard to memorize. But even then, they were not disciples. Most who completed secondary education stopped school when they had completed the secondary education. Only a very few went on to become a Talmud, which is the Hebrew word we translate disciple. Only the best and the brightest with the strongest drive and the greatest discipline to endure one of the most rigorous training lifestyles ever in all of history became disciples. So to become one, you graduated from that secondary school and you had to go find a rabbi and say, could I please become one of your Talmud, one of your disciples, right? And in making that request, what they were saying to the rabbi is they were saying, I want to be like you in every way. I want to know what you know and I want to act like you act. I want to think like you think. I want to do what you do. So one who pursued this was basically committing to memorizing essentially the entire Old Testament, and to live with that rabbi 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to not just learn head knowledge, but to observe how they lived and understand why they did what they did and how they, why they spoke the way they did and what they did in all of their life to live in the same manner. So a question we have to ask ourselves when we look at this understanding of a disciple is, are we truly disciples of Jesus? Do we live with that same sense of passion, that same sense of singular focus? And in one sense, we cannot call ourselves disciples of Jesus unless we have that kind of focus. The question really is, how consumed are you with being like Jesus more than anything else in the entire world? See, typically the rabbis would take those people who came to them and asked to be disciples and they'd put them through this probationary period, which we all know spells, putting them through the ringer, weeding out those who were not able to be as dedicated as they need to be. And the reality is most of the people who even got into that probationary period fell by the wayside. Only a very few made it all the way through and persevered in studying for many years until they were then released as a rabbi and then they made their own disciples. It is within this context of discipleship 
that Jesus comes and lives and teaches. And much of this concept of discipleship, Jesus steps right into and he takes it on and operates in similar ways. When Jesus talks to the people that he's talking to about being his disciple, he knows that they are thinking in these terms that I have just described to you. And yet Jesus also does some really amazing things that flip the idea of this kind of discipleship on its head. Allow me to point out some of Jesus' priorities in his disciples. Jesus makes a huge change, a huge change. Instead of waiting for people to come to him after years of theologically and morally performing so well, Jesus goes to them. And Jesus initiates inviting ordinary working men and women to be his disciples, saying, come, follow me. Think about this. Think, think about the Capernaum Five I mentioned just a little bit ago. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. They're all back working in their professions at, in Capernaum, which means they were not good enough to progress toward being a disciple. In fact, most likely they dropped out after the elementary school age of the process, and they were not even good enough to go to the secondary school process. Jesus picked ordinary people. And said to them, you can become like me. Not only that, but it says he chose them. It's actually more forceful than you can. It's, it's, it's come, follow me. It wasn't acceptance into some sort of rigorous weeding out trial period. It was, it was come, I accept you. Have you ever had someone in your life that believed in you so much? And it turned your life around because of it. You see, Jesus is saying to them, to you and I, to each and every one of us, I believe in you. You can be like me. I know who you are. But I also know who you can be. So come and follow me. The question is, what does that mean for us? It means you could walk out of church today and say, I won't be a disciple. But you can't walk out of here today saying, I can never be good enough to be a disciple of Jesus, to be loved by God in that way. Because Jesus has already said to you, you can come and follow me and be like me. Jesus chose them. In a culture where most didn't make it, most were not good enough, Jesus chose them and he chooses you. John, one of his closest disciples, he refers to him as the closest disciple, one of the Capernaum Five, holds on to this very idea of being chosen as one of the bedrock pieces of his faith. In fact, you see him quoting Jesus saying, I choose you four times. In the gospel, he writes, and John 15 is one example where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Do we really understand what it means for Jesus to believe in us, for Jesus to believe in you. 
The second really amazing thing Jesus does that flips the world's discipleship on its head is this. Jesus doesn't demand that we believe rightly or act rightly in order to follow him, to begin following him. Look at who Jesus asks to follow him. I mean, he asks Matthew. Matthew 9, Matthew's telling the account of Jesus coming to him. And, and, and Matthew is this despised tax collector. In, in the Jews' eyes, he was a thief and rightfully labeled so because it was very well-known, common practice that if you were a tax collector, you swindled people by charging them more and you had the authority to force them to pay more than they were supposed to pay so that you could become rich. He was a thief. And he probably made a really good living because Capernaum is, is uh, not, he couldn't just tax, he could tax more than just the people in Capernaum because it was on the major trade route from Damascus to Jerusalem. So he also got to, toll, to pay, make everybody who was on the trade route pay tolls. He was a really wealthy swindler. But he was also viewed as an apostate to the faith. He was viewed as a traitor to the Jewish nation. And here's what it says about him in Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, tax collectors were worse than sinners. They were the worst kind of sinner. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. Matthew was the worst kind of sinner and then believed rightly. And Jesus said, follow me. Think about Thomas, one of his other 12. It wasn't until after the resurrection that Thomas even began to believe fully right. Jesus says, to be my disciple, you don't have to believe rightly, but you do need to follow me. So what does that practically mean for us today? Well, it means that being a disciple isn't first and foremost focused on theological knowledge. I mean, now let's not forget the baseline of biblical knowledge and theological knowledge that Jesus' had, disciples had is far beyond the average person in this room today because they had grown up reading and memorizing Scripture and listening for hours and hours to rabbis teaching and debating. <clears throat> and clearly, if we look at Jesus' teaching as a whole, he expects that anyone who follows him will be avidly interested in growing in theological understanding in disciplining themselves to read and study and to listen and learn and grow but you don't have to measure up to a certain level in order to begin following Jesus, either theological knowledge or in moral purity. So what is required then by Jesus? To follow Jesus meant a re radical reprioritization of life. All personal and business interests now become submitted to God. In the case of the original 12 disciples, it meant actually they actually left their family businesses and they left their families behind traveling for extended periods of time with Jesus just to be his disciple. It was this total reprioritization of their life ambition and their focus in life. Now, now to, to be fair, to fully understand their response here, you also need to remember that what Jesus was asking these disciples to do in following him was he was giving them the opportunity of a lifetime. He was letting them become something they had dreamt of 
as a child growing up, but we're disallowed from doing in their culture. But isn't that true for all of us, that what Jesus is asking us to is come to our dreams? We dream for a life of peace, and Jesus offers that. We dream for a life of love, and Jesus offers that. We dream for a life where our sin and our failures don't disqualify us, and Jesus offers us redemption. We dream to discover our best fit and our purpose in life. And Jesus says, I've got good works prepared in advance for you. I know how I made you, and I have your purpose all in hand for your life. And I'll lead you into it. It's radical. Reprioritization is what Jesus asks of us when he chooses us to follow him. Now, the 12 12 disciples left family and houses and jobs to follow Jesus, but but the reality is most of us are not traveling ministers, and most of us can't necessarily relate to that. So what does that look like for you and I, uh, more ordinary people, to be a disciple? I think a good example that we can look at is the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, and you see that it meant radical commitment to community in the church. It meant radical commitment to being taught and growing daily. It meant radical commitment to serving in the advance of God's mission to seek and to save the lost and the hurting for the purposes of the gospel, that that would be the priority in everything we chose to do in community service and in the way we gave our charitable giving had to, was all centered around the mission of Christ. And it meant radical generosity in the early church. But Jesus asked for more than this. Jesus also asked for a commitment to becoming like him. In fact, you see this this explicitly stated in Jesus giving instructions to his disciples on what to do and how to do it and what to say as he sends them out on their first short-term mission trip in in Matthew 10. Even Jesus organized short-term mission trips as a way of growing his disciples and impacting the world. And and I want you to take really seriously what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. I want all of you, every single one of you, to pray about the possibility of joining the Belize trip later in the year because God may want to do something really powerful in you while you make a difference in other people's lives as well. But Jesus' instructions to his people begin like this in Matthew 10, 25. He says, it is enough for students to be like their teachers and for servants to be like their masters. See, even Jesus has this idea that those who like him and follow him need to learn to be like him. I think Paul talks about this very same idea using a term that I think is extremely helpful to us later when he uses the term imitate. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Now, you need to understand the context there. Paul's not setting himself up as the Messiah. What he's saying is, in as much as I imitate Christ, you imitate me and how I imitate Jesus. Think about this for a moment. What does imitation look like? I think it's really helpful for us to think about this in the context of our children and uh, and how they like to be grown up. And this is actually one of my favorite pictures of all time from being a dad is this is my oldest son, Derek, who that day when I was putting on my tie just had to be like me. He just could not rest until he stood on the counter and had to try to tie his tie. It's one of the most precious pictures that I have. I wish it was a little better quality than that. It's a little dark. You see, we see imitations and mannerisms a desire to be like our Father. 
but we don't just learn mannerisms. Truth is, we learn the complete package of how to deal with conflict and how to deal with life in general through imitation. How many of you have ever scared yourself after having an argument or disciplining a child thinking, I just sounded exactly like my dad or my mom? Anybody? See, we imitate the good things in our parents, and we also find ourselves realizing that we imitate some of the things that we wish we might not be picking up and imitating. We learn to relate to others through imitation. Imitation. We, we learn communication skills often by imitations. And sometimes that's healthy and good. Sometimes it's a bit artificial. I've worked with hundreds of pastors and among them more than 100 young people who are just getting into pastoring or, or headed that direction. And I, I often get a chuckle uh, over the years around uh, young preachers, especially because I was in mostly Pentecostal uh, circles and, and they, they try to imitate their favorite big name successful preachers when they're starting to learn to preach. So they, they imitate their mannerisms and sound like, praise God, the pastor to whom they want to aspire. Can I hear? and amen. Thank you. And just like I sounded there, they sound nothing like themselves personality-wise. And they sound a bit artificial. And once in a while for some of them, because they're in that culture and their personalities like that, that works. But for most of them, it doesn't work. But, you know, we know, even as public speakers, we grow by imitation. We listen to TED Talks. We borrow material from others and we try to say it like they say it so we learn to deliver a good joke, a skill that I haven't mastered yet. We learn how to tell a good story. We, we, we use somebody else's material to help us structure a speech so we learn how to make a point memorable. We learn often best by imitation. Sure, at first, imitating is almost always awkward, isn't it? It's just like trying to teach a, a little young hand, right-handed kid to do basketball layups jumping off their left foot. You know, the, they may feel and look awkward at first as they stumble around trying to get the footwork right. And, uh, but the more you do it, the more natural it becomes. And, and the skill you're imitating eventually becomes part of you. And, and, it, and it fades from obvious awkward view to just being something that simply makes you stronger and better in life. The power of growing by imitation is at the heart of discipleship. Embedded within, within this idea of imitation is another truth that we readily recognize, but, but sometimes we resist. A friend of mine posted this quote on Facebook this last week. It says, some things have to be believed to be seen. Now, some of you may react to that and say, that's anti-intellectual. No, no, it really isn't. Stick with me. You could say the same thing this way. If you don't believe a teacher is good and right, you won't do what they say, and you won't see any progress. But if you believe a teacher is good and right, even if you have doubts, even if you've never seen something, you're going to try it, right? You're going to imitate them, and then you will see. Some things have to be believed to be seen, and imitation does that for us. We trust the one we were following so that even though we have doubts, we imitate their actions, their words, and their behavior. And only after we do that imitation for a while do we actually see the truth of the reality. From that perspective, it's powerfully simple. Simple's not always easy, 
But it's powerfully simple to learn to be a disciple of Jesus. See, Jesus says in Matthew 10 to his disciples, you've seen me preach this hopeful message of the kingdom of heaven is coming near. So if we look further in Matthew 10, Jesus doesn't leave it up to his disciples of, well, you you don't have to think about what you need to preach. Jesus says to him, when I'm going to send you out on the short-term mission trip, look at verse 7. He says, I want you to say this, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verse 8, he says, and after that, follow that up by praying for the sick and those who are oppressed by evil and watch me move. It's simple. He tells them what to say and what to do. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I know you don't believe that you can do this miracle stuff and preach effectively like me and see lives changed, even though you've seen me do it. So just just say this and then do this and see what happens. And he follows that instruction up by saying this, freely you have received, so freely give. In other words, whatever you have freely seen me do, Freely imitate that. Take it from me. No copyright. Just do it. Right? How many of you can't imagine God working miraculously through your prayers? As followers of Jesus, his spirit would be here saying to you right now, just imitate me. Do what I do. Don't worry about missing it. Don't worry about falling short. That's going to happen. Jesus chooses you. He knows you already, and he approaches you with a deep sense of patience and compassion. I mean, again, think about it. Jesus lived day and night, 365 days a year for a little over three years, and Thomas still didn't believe even after he was resurrected. He still doubted, and yet Jesus never rejected him. In fact, he only responded to him with encouraging, come on, just try it, just go for it kind of patience with him, right? See, even before we are confident, Jesus asks us to follow him. And the way we grow as disciples is to imitate him and discover how he's going to work through us as we learn to live and act and think and believe and see life as he does. To let you see a powerful, beautiful illustration of this, I've asked Sharon to come and share with you how she's been teaching, how she's been imitating Jesus and teaching the kids to imitate Jesus and and then another really amazing, beautiful story I'll let her tell. thank you. Thanks. So one of the reasons I love to pray with the children is they just naturally imitate Jesus. So as many of you know, the last, on the fourth Sunday of every month, we bring the children in here and we let them pray for the adults. Well, before we do that, So last Sunday, during the second service, while we were doing this modeling process, there happened to be two young men in there who had some physical pain. One of them had pain in his knee, and one of them had pain in his shoulder. So the kids just simply, one at a time, invited them up and would sit in the chair. They invited the Holy Spirit. They prayed a couple of simple prayers of command in Jesus' name. And at the end of all this process, both of these young men said their pain was gone. Then, brought the children in to pray, and I don't remember which service it was, but I had the privilege of watching a young team over here minister to a woman, and she was having some toe pain, a discomfort pain, been going on for a while, and the children simply did the same process. They just invited the Holy Spirit, prayed musical prayers of command in Jesus' name. They had it tried out, and it was a little better, and so they knew, because it was a little better, that the Holy Spirit 
And it was Sharon's simple prayers of deciding she wanted to fast and pray for God's direction for children's ministry that nine months ago led her to come to me and say, I feel like God is telling me we need to start a search and transition now that God is saying it's time for a full-time thing. We went through a lot of conversations nine months later. We're there. And even at that point, she said, you know, I'd love to stay on staff and do stuff, but even if I have to, we need to do this. This is what God is saying, even if it means I am not on staff. And so would you just also over these next couple of weeks as we transition children's ministry, just express tons of appreciation and honor to Sharon. She has led wonderfully, beautifully, powerfully being led by God. So thank you. Imitation of Jesus is imitating him in prayer and the way we approach ministry. But it's also more than that. 
It's imitating him by watching how Jesus responds to conflict. And, and we pay attention to that. And when we learn to do it the same way Jesus does, it's, it's looking how Jesus responds to fear. And, and, and we, we learn to respond to our own fears by thinking that through and imitating him. It's, it's looking at how Jesus responds to people caught in sin and addiction around him and, and meditating on what that looks like and learning to imitate Jesus when we face similar situations like the, the woman caught in adultery. We use that as examples to learn to imitate him and see him begin to change us and work through us. Following Jesus, imitating him, so that when he says, his yoke is easy and my burden is light, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, that we discover what that looks like, sounds like, and feels like because we imitate him. There is so much more we're going to explore about how Jesus wants us to not only like him, but learn to be like him over the next few weeks in this series. But allow me to leave you with these two questions today. Is your whole goal in life to like Jesus, which is nice, or to become like Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you're not a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is here saying, you can be. I want you to be. I'm inviting you to be. And you can make that choice today. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we just ask that you would come and that you'd help all of us, wherever we're at in our lives, of belief in you, that you would continue to let us know that sense of your invitation, that sense of invitation to follow you, that those areas where you want us to know the joy of being like you, so that our lives can be like these inspiring stories that we love about who you are, that we can live that and experience you working through us in that way. Would you come, especially during this season leading up to Easter as we're talking about this, would you come and would you do that in each and every one of our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to also celebrate communion today. And... It's a wonderful day to do it because celebrating communion means that when we take his body, we are saying, we want to be like you, Jesus. We want to imitate you. We want to live like you lived and and think and act like you acted when you were on earth. We want to imitate you. And it's also the celebration, the fact that Jesus, before we ever even were looking for him, before we even knew we had a problem or knew that he might be the solution, he was the one already dying to pay the price for our sins so that we could all have a second, third, and fourth, and tenth, and we could have all the chances we need because he would forgive us because he paid the price for our sin. So as you come and receive communion, if you're a follower of Jesus, come and celebrate that. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, come and take communion and celebrate the fact that you want to be a follower of Jesus. Let's continue to worship as we take communion. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.